You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Drunken Deck, Two-Gun Tony, The Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to introduce our newest Commodore, Commodore Craig, and our quartermasters, Samuel and Adam. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. I've been on a Vietnam kick lately. It all started when the 4th of July was on the horizon. See, I was looking for something American, and Ken Burns is one of my all-time heroes. His documentaries always fill me with pride in America and what it means to be American, They don't shy away from the stains that are there, but they always focus on the better angels of our nature. In this case, I watched his series on the Vietnam War. That one's a little tough. It's very good, but those first-hand accounts of soldiers who were in the thick of some of the worst fighting, it can be difficult. But that put me on a Vietnam kick. I went on to watch Apocalypse Now, which I love, and Platoon. I'd never seen Platoon before. It was good, but some of the drama, especially after something like The Vietnam War by Ken Burns, kind of fell a little flat. But the first thing I thought, the first thing I noticed was that the sets on Platoon looked kind of fake. It all looked too green and too pretty, so I looked it up. I wanted to know what Hollywood sound set it had been shot on, and to my surprise, it wasn't shot on a stage. It was all really in the jungle. It just was that green and that pretty. However, it wasn't shot in Vietnam, nor was Apocalypse Now. They couldn't have been. I mean, Americans weren't super welcome in the Socialist Republic of Vietnam in the 70s and 80s. Instead, both films were shot in the Philippines. For good reason, Saigon, or as it's known today, Ho Chi Minh City, in terms of latitude, sits just about in the middle of Manila and Mindanao, and Saigon is about as far from Mindanao as Portland is to Denver. 
I think you can begin to see where this is headed. Today we're talking about the crew of the Signet in the Philippines, and if you want a visual representation of what the pirates there would have seen, those are all good examples. Do you want to see the beaches onto which William Dampier arrived? Well, you can watch Apocalypse Now. There was less surfing in the 1680s and less napalm in the morning, but the beaches weren't all that different. Do you want to see the jungle? Well, you can go watch Platoon. And if you want some raw, uncurated footage, even though it's across the South China Sea, you could do a lot worse than the Vietnam War by Ken Burns. But now it's time for us to return to the deck of Signet in Morro Bay, almost exactly 333 years ago, in early August 1686. This is episode 124, The Wild Wild East. When we left off last time, the quartermaster of Signet, Henry Moore, was being interrogated by Captain Charles Swan. He'd just returned from a night ashore in which he'd met the Sultan and his brother, in which he'd dropped off some gifts from Charles Swan and had enjoyed the effects of the boy nut. Now the crew were deeply interested in the women of Mindanao, but Captain Swan and Mr. Harthop, the factor on board Signet, were less interested in that and much more interested in the Sultan. They wanted to know what he had to say. And do you remember those two men who sailed out to visit Signet the day before, the young and fancy one and the older, tougher one? Well, Henry Moore drug his mind through the fog of the previous night to drop a tiny, inconsequential little nugget that those two just happened to be the Sultan's brother and the Sultan's son and heir. Captain Swan was mortified by the news. He'd only given those two ambassadors a single-gun salute, and guests like that, well, they deserved a full-complement barrage. It was a deeply embarrassing breach of protocol, but it was only the beginning. You might remember that those two ambassadors seemed very familiar with the crew of Signet. They acted as though they were welcoming old friends back once again. Well, it turns out that that's what they thought they were doing, sort of. They thought that the Signet was an official ship from the East India Company, and they thought that Swan was representing the corporation and that he was going to fight the Spanish. Now, some of the men on board Signet did want to fight the Spanish on behalf of the Sultan. Dampier wrote, quote, Our men, who were squeamish of plundering without license, derived hopes from thence of getting a commission from the prince of the island to plunder the Spanish about Manila. End quote. A bunch of the crew wanted letters of marque so they could privateer for the Sultan. And that's reasonable. And not without precedence. Think back to John Ward. He was an Englishman turned pirate who had virtually no chance of ever returning to English society. Where could he go in that case? Spain and France were out, the Netherlands were still Spanish, basically his only option was a sultanate on the fringes of the Islamic world that wasn't super strict, a multinational, cosmopolitan sort of place that had a history of piracy committed by the locals. He sailed there, got the blessing of the sultan, and robbed the Spanish. 
From the proceeds, he bought a house, got married, had a pack of kids, and retired. The crew of Signet were a bunch of Englishmen who turned pirate that had very little chance of ever returning to English society. Where could they go? Jamaica would have been the answer, but three years ago they'd started killing anybody even associated with pirates. North America was cracking down as well, so they sailed for a sultanate on the fringes of the Islamic world, a cosmopolitan sort of place with a history of piracy committed by the locals. Which is as good a place as any to touch briefly on the Moro people. When we talk about the non-Arabian, Filipino people of Mindanao Island, we're talking about the Moro. Traditionally, the Moro were peaceful Buddhist farmers and fishermen. They were cultivators of rice and coconut, of mango and durian. I don't want to pigeonhole the Moro people here, but when Dampier and Signet arrived in 1686, they still grew rice and coconuts, but their primary industry was piracy. Originally, the Moro people had been from Malaysia, when the Islamic Sultanates moved in there, they traveled to Borneo. When the Sulu Sultanate cropped up in Borneo, they sailed across the Sulu Sea to Mindanao. And here they were once again under the Islamic boot. By this point, most of them had converted to Islam, but they still sailed the Sulu Sea on the prowl for Hindu, Chinese, Portuguese, and Spanish vessels. Those vessels didn't know those seas very well, and they tended to get caught on the sandbars there. If that sounds familiar to you, that's exactly how the Bahamanian pirates operated in the West Indies. These were oppressed people who knew their own seas, preying on the oppressors who did not. So the pirates here on Mindanao wanted to settle down and pull a John Ward. They wanted to serve as privateers of Mindanao. And in that respect, yes, they wanted to fight the Spanish. But that's not what the Sultan was thinking here. He was imagining the English East India Company and everything that entailed. Powerful waterfront fortresses that were filled with guns. Fortresses that would employ a ton of locals in their militia. He was imagining armadas of first-rate ships of the line that would guard their shores and waters. And who knows... One of those ships of the line might just be carrying James, the Duke of York, who would stop by for a visit. That's what the Sultan had in mind when he was thinking of the English East India Company. And that put Charles Swan in an awkward position. He was not a representative of the East India Company, Signet was not a first-rate ship of the line, and his men, though talented warriors, were not exactly disciplined soldiers. But you have to make the best of an awkward situation. So Swan went ahead and made his preparations. He brushed his coat and he shined his boots and he combed his hair. Now maybe it's just because of the fourth, but this all makes me think of Washington crossing the Delaware. You're all familiar with that painting, right? George Washington standing in his boat with his lieutenant holding the revolutionary flag... He and a motley crew of rebels forge their way across the icy Delaware River. It's a famous painting. So imagine that. Put it in your head. Only instead of George Washington looking imperious and majestic, 
you have fat Ebenezer Scrooge in a wrinkled coat. Instead of the brave, handsome generals of the Continental Army, you have a lawyer and a skinny scientist with no chin. And instead of the representative cross-section of America portrayed in Washington crossing the Delaware, you have a bunch of filthy, toothless pirates. But they put on a brave show nonetheless. They flew the English cross at their stern, and they blew their trumpets from the moment they disembarked Signet until they met the Sultan's agents on the shore. Charles Swan, William Dampier, Mr. Harthop, Mr. Smith, who spoke the best Spanish, and a coterie of others that possibly included John Reed and Henry Moore, made the same voyage that Mr. Moore had made the previous night. Only this time it was in the full light of day. They marched through the jungle into the bustle of a busy city. Today that city is called Cotabato City, but Dampier never uses that name. Instead he calls it Mindanao or occasionally Maguindanao. I'm going to call it Mindanao. I'm not sure if it was called Cotabato City at the time, or if that came from later Spanish influence. When they emerged from the jungle, the full expanse of the city was visible before them. It was large, but it wasn't the sort of stone-building and paved-road city that Dampier and company would have been used to. I honestly wonder if they'd ever seen a large city that wasn't built in a classical style. These men had likely seen London, perhaps Madrid and Cadiz, maybe even Paris and Rome. Who knows, some of them might have even gone to Istanbul or Havana. But these buildings were mostly built of bamboo and palm. Instead of a city built in a large stone grid pattern, they were all built in and among the trees. There were roadways connecting all of the neighborhoods of Mindanao, but there were dense thickets of jungle that were kind of packed in around those neighborhoods. It looked sort of like the jungle was creeping in, although it appeared to have been that way for many, many years. It was designed that way for the very same reason that the houses were all on stilts, for the same reason that there was very little architecture at the shoreline, the typhoon. And for all of you meteorology geeks out there, I'm aware that cyclones aren't technically called typhoons in the southern Pacific Ocean, but that's a modern distinction. The Chinese, Hindu, and Muslim leadership who were in the Philippines at the time would have called them typhoons, and we could call them that, or we could call them hurricanes, or we could call them Pacific cyclones, or we could call them swirly boys, but we'd all know what we were talking about. Right about September, when the monsoon winds change, when they trap unsuspecting pirates in the Philippines, that's when typhoon season begins. When the winds start to blow, it's handy to have a bunch of trees to break that wind. When the monsoon brings the rains, the marshes fill, the tides rise, and the streets flood. So they built on stilts, and when the massive waves would strike the island's shoreline, it's better to have those waves hit a tree line than a harbor. But all that was in the future, for now it was a beautiful, sunny day in a tropical paradise. There was a river running through the center of Mindanao that was filled with people bathing and washing clothes and frolicking, oftentimes all three at once. This was a shock to William Dampier, in part because most of these people weren't wearing clothing, but I think 
Even more shocking than that was that they were bathing in the first place. We'll talk about that at a later date, though. The markets of Mindanao were bustling. The smells of grilled meat and incense filled the air, and all of the people watched and smiled as the group of Englishmen passed them. All of these people had those black teeth and red-stained lips, thanks to the boy, but they were a lot less terrifying in broad daylight. And I'm going to quote one of the soldiers from that Ken Burns series on the Vietnam War. He was talking about his arrival as an 18-year-old boy in Vietnam. He said, quote, What struck me was how beautiful Vietnam was to look at. There were just these endless acres of these jade-green rice paddies and these lovely villages inside groves of bamboo and palm trees and way off in the distance these bluish jungle mountains. It looked like Shangri-La. I remember seeing this line of Vietnamese women, or schoolgirls I think they were. They actually looked like angels come to earth or something like that. So it was really quite striking, but a little unsettling, because how can a place like this, so beautiful and so enchanting, be at war? End quote. That's a beautiful sequence on film. It's filled with water buffalo and these sweeping vistas and these angelic girls who look so happy. They're happy to be there, and they're happy to welcome these young boys to Vietnam. They welcome them with flowers and kisses and these broad smiles. And that's how I imagine the crewmen of Signet arriving at Mindanao. They were taken to the Sultan's palace, and Captain Swan was brought to meet the Sultan himself. Swan chose to bring William Dampier and Mr. Smith with him. Sultan Barahaman was pleased to meet all three, and he offered them tea and tobacco and boy. At first the sailors eagerly accepted, but then they noticed that neither their host nor any of his attendants were partaking in any of it. And if you were ever a teenager who experimented with pot, you know that feeling. One of your friends lets you hit the bowl first, that's great, but when you go to pass it, they all giggle and say, nah, you go ahead, and the bottom drops out. That's never a good thing. It's probably going to be oregano or something much, much worse, and you are going to have a bad time. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. The Englishmen were suspicious when they realized nobody else was partaking, and they quite diplomatically inquired as to what was going on. But it turns out that it was all innocent. 
Dampier tells us it was the time of, quote, Ramdam, but of course he means Ramadan. The Muslims in Mindanao were observing their fast. They couldn't have tea or tobacco or buai, and they weren't able to offer any of the traditional entertainment in the Sultan's palace. The women were all busy praying in seclusion, and they wouldn't be able to come talk or dance. But, you know, that kind of explains the party that Henry Moore had experienced the night before. That was at nighttime. They were breaking their daily fast, and they were having a good time doing it. But for now, that might be for the best. They offered the Englishmen those comforts, but they had business to discuss. Sultan Barahaman produced two letters. The first of these was in passable Spanish, with a few Arabic kindnesses and blessings tossed in. But if the language was only passable, the letter itself was glorious. Dampier goes on and on about the parchment and the artful calligraphy, He notes the golden ink that separates every line on the page. This was an expensive letter. It was written by a London representative of the English East India Company. And I'm calling it the English East India Company because, well, first of all, we need to distinguish it from the Dutch and French companies. And even though the East India Company is much better known to history as the British East India Company, The United Kingdom of Great Britain didn't exist yet, so it was still the English East India Company. Officially, it was the Honorable East India Company. More informally, though, it was just called the EIC. However, to the common Englishman, to Dampier, in his text, for example, they were simply called the Company. We're going to talk about them in some depth next time, but we do need to touch on how they were viewed by the English in the 1680s. You know how today Facebook, Apple, and Google control everything in the world? How literally 40% of the internet is hosted on Amazon servers? How when people decide that they're going to boycott social media, they do so by announcing their boycott on social media. Everyone knows this, and no one is really happy about this state of affairs, but I mean, what are you going to do? Stop using the internet? Well, if you lived basically anywhere in the world for about 300 years or so, your life was impacted and on some level reliant on one or another of these massive trading conglomerates. When Swan and Dampier saw that letter, It's as though they saw a letter that was signed by one of Mark Zuckerberg's lawyers. That letter detailed a proposal by the company to build a factory in Mindanao. And the Sultan was very supportive of that. The English, the English East India Company, would aid him in the war against Spain, and they would provide a pipeline to world markets. Swan had to explain that he was not a representative of the company. But the Sultan countered. They had a perfect spot picked out for the factory already. They had it cleared and everything. They had all the building materials ready and had a team of men ready to start construction immediately. The fortress was there. It was just waiting for a bunch of Englishmen to command it. They could buy and sell spices from all around the Moluccas. They could grow rich and they could grow powerful. They could have their pick of those angelic Moro girls. Swan deferred. This was not his position, but... He didn't defer too strenuously. I mean, he couldn't just stay in the Philippines. He had responsibilities back in London, but maybe something could be arranged here. 
I mean, imagine if he returned to London with a ship that was full of silk and nutmeg and gold. And imagine that he returned with news that he'd overseen the construction of a factory intended for the East India Company. If they just gave him the ships and the men, well, he already knew the island, he already had a rapport with the Sultan, he could be an official representative of the Honorable East India Company. Be absolutely certain that this was going through Captain Swan's mind. But Dampier wasn't interested in all that. He was reading the second letter that the Sultan had provided, and that one was in English. It was in a significantly less flowery hand, and it didn't have the gold ink. It was written by an Englishman named Captain Goodlud. He had been the captain in charge of the expedition to Mindanao by the East India Company that had brought that previous letter to the Sultan. He was the representative that discussed setting up this factory on Mindanao with the Sultan. Presumably that letter was intended for the East India Company representatives that would follow to build the factory, but instead it fell into the hands of Swan and Dampier. Most of it wasn't that interesting. It detailed the trade deal that had been worked out between Goodlud and the Sultan. It had exchange rates for silver and gold and all sorts of different goods. It had the prices that would be set for commodities to be bought by the company. And I mean, it was the sort of information that would be extremely important for whatever company man came to set up that factory, but it wasn't necessary information for the pirates. However, it did contain one nugget I want to mention. Dampier talks of it, and when he says the general, here he's referring to Raja Laut, the sultan's brother. He writes, quote, Captain Goodlud's letter concludes thus, quoting Goodlud here, Trust none of them, for they are all thieves. And Dampier continues, We understood afterwards that Captain Goodlud was robbed of some goods by one of the general's men, and that he that robbed him fled into the mountains and could not be found while Captain Goodlud was here. End quote. This is an example of that Moro piracy of which we spoke earlier. More on that in a second, though. For now, the Sultan excused the Englishmen after their pleasant but not exactly productive meeting. They did find some common ground, and there was potential for a relationship there, but nothing was set in stone. Outside the palace, Captain Swan, Dampier, and Smith found the rest of the men relaxing. They were all chewing on boy that had been proffered by a group of beautiful young women. The women were all giggling and smiling and attempting to communicate in broken Spanish. The men outside were having a great time. But there was another man there as well who wasn't from the crew of the Signet, we can imagine him talking to Henry Moore familiarly because they knew each other, although maybe he was using Moore to talk to the rest of the crew. This was Raja Laut, and Raja Laut was the sort of guy that the crew of Signet could identify with. He was tough as nails, he was a warrior, and, well, he was a naval man, he was the admiral of the Mindanao fleet. But he was also the kind of guy that even during Ramadan, would bring women and drugs to the party. And in case there's any confusion here, Raja Laut was not a Hindu Raja. He was the Muslim brother of Sultan Barahaman, 
but they had made Raja a princely title on Mindanao. It was a move that would placate the Hindu element on the island, but it would also relocate the role of Raja to a secondary status. I mean, it's an old imperial move. Sort of like the Romans marching in and taking over and saying, yes, yes, you can keep your kingship and all of your ancestral titles, just remember that I'm the emperor. And, you know, the Normans did the same thing when they conquered England. It's an ancient tactic here. But Raja Laut was busy ingratiating himself with the men of Signet. He asked Captain Swan if they would like to bring the crew ashore. Swan was hesitant here, but Laut attempted to persuade the captain. He warned Swan that the weather would be growing tempestuous, which it very much would be, and he told Swan that some of the Moro might harbor nefarious designs against the English. For the moment, Captain Swan deferred, but he did bring Signet in closer to land, and he brought much of the crew ashore. When nighttime finally fell and all of the tiki torches were lit, Raja Laut had had pavilions erected and hammocks set up for the men. And then he had pots of steamed rice and buffalo meat brought in. Some of the women of the island brought gifts to the party, and they gave those to some of the crew. And I'm sure at the moment most of those men thought, oh yeah, she's all over me, and, you know, many of them very likely did find some company that evening, but that's not what these gifts were about. That's part of a whole cultural tradition on Mindanao that we're going to talk about later. Still, though, it's pretty great. Here's food and here's women giving you flowers and pretty baubles. You know, that's a good time. The Filipino men on the island invited the crew to take part in a contest. Oftentimes, these sort of masculinity contests are the sort of thing that just sound awful to me. Usually, they sound painful, but this one I can get behind. Every man had a bowl of rice and a bowl of water before him. They dipped their hands into the water, and then they grabbed as much rice as they could. They squeezed the rice down, they compacted it into tight balls, first, you know, maybe softball size, and then baseball sized, and then smaller and smaller. When they had a tight, small, compact ball of rice, they grabbed yet more rice and added it to their ball and squeezed it and squeezed it until they had all of the rice that they thought could conceivably fit into their mouth. Then they popped the rice ball in and had to chew it and swallow it. Spit it out, you lose. Choke, you lose. And in the end, whoever managed to swallow his ball of rice and had the least amount of rice left in the bowl would win the contest. Once it came time for the Muslims to break their fast, they came and joined the festivities and they partied all night. Anybody who was anybody on Mindanao was here, meeting and mingling with the crew of Signet. Everybody was sharing food and tea and buai and hashish. They played bamboo flutes and they played xylophones. The women danced and the men showed their weapons off to one another. Everyone was getting along famously. You know, this is why I like pirates so much. When the locals offer up food and good times... Instead of returning the favor with rape and murder, as so many other people did, 
the pirates just enjoyed themselves. And, you know, let's not pretend that pirates were never guilty of rape and murder and robbery. They absolutely were. That's kind of what makes pirates pirates. But when they committed those crimes, they did so against the Spanish Empire or the Royal Navy or the East India Company. They did it against their enemies. When they were offered hospitality, they didn't abuse it. And we see this in a ton of other places. The Mosquito people in Nicaragua, the Guna people of Darien, the Malagasy of Madagascar, and here, the Moro of Mindanao. And not just the Moro on Mindanao. There were a bunch of people here. There were the Muslim elites of the city, sure, but there were also some Chinese merchants here, which I doubt any of the Englishmen had ever met anyone from China before. And perhaps even more surprisingly, there were a few Spaniards in the crowd. We're going to meet them in far greater detail later on. For now, though, the crew of Signet impressed Raja Laut as, well, you know, one doesn't want to say men of honor because they weren't, and respectable doesn't fit either, but Raja Laut liked the men of Signet. Remember that bit about the thief who had robbed Captain Goodlud some time before? Well, Dampier continues that story the morning after this little shindig. He writes, quote, The fellow, returning back to the city some time after, Raja Laut brought him bound to Captain Swan, desiring him to punish him as he pleased. Captain Swan excused himself and said it did not belong to him, therefore he would have nothing to do with it. However, Raja Laut would not pardon him, but punished him according to their own custom. He was stripped stark naked in the morning at sunrising and bound to a post so that he could not stir hand nor foot, and was placed with his face eastward against the sun. In the afternoon they turned his face towards the west that the sun might still be in his face, and thus he stood all day, parched in the sun, which shines here excessively hot, and tormented with the mosquitoes and gnats. After this, the general would have killed him if Captain Swan had consented to it. Sometimes they lay them flat on their backs on the sand, which is very hot, where they remain a whole day in the scorching sun, with the mosquitoes biting them all the time. End quote. Now that sounds awful, yes, but that's not really the point here. To me, this signals a sign of acceptance of the crew of Signet, a sign of trust and goodwill. I mean, here's this general, this admiral, the second most powerful man on Mindanao, at least, you know, by his title. Arguably, he was the most powerful man on Mindanao. And he brings out the man who had wronged one of your countrymen, one of his people, and he offers you the opportunity to exact justice on this man. But when you decline, he goes ahead and doles that justice out himself. It's kind of a courtship ritual. He was trying very hard to show the English here that he was on their side. And it worked. Following this demonstration... Captain Swan decided to trust Raja Laut. He ordered the crew to bring the signet in and park it in a spot pointed out by the Raja in the river. And that decision, as it turned out, would doom him. Over the following weeks, the crew of signet would, 
ingratiate themselves into the community of Mindanao. They had a several-month-long stay ahead of them until the winds changed, and they decided they would make the best of it. For the time being, we're going to leave them to it. We will return to Mindanao, to the Signet and Charles Swan, to William Dampier and John Reed and Herman Coppinger, and to Raja Laut, but not next time. Next time we'll be looking in greater depth at the people who Charles Swan was presumed to represent. Next time we're talking about the English East India Company. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. I'd like to thank everyone who has given us a review or a rating and everybody who has recommended this show. All of you make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly can do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight